Selling technology is actually really difficult. Even if your product is incredible, it doesn't mean you're really solving a customer's problem because the customer will see what their problem is. They won't see how your tool, which is abstract, fits into their problem. And that is, in fact, the reality of most enterprise software is you're building tools that have incredible power as a potential platform to solve more than one problem for your customer. Them understanding the value is hard because they don't necessarily want to standardize on your tool. You're listening to the Enterprise Ready Podcast, a show aiming to change the enterprise software narrative from how to sell to enterprises to how to build for enterprises. We'll interview industry experts and enterprise software founders as we break through the jargon, establish a common vernacular, and share the lessons learned from building the world's best enterprise software. Hi, I'm Grant Miller, creator of Enterprise Ready and founder and CEO of Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications. Check us out at replicated.com. The Enterprise Ready Podcast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. In this episode of the Enterprise Ready Podcast, Grant sits down with Alexis Richardson, founder and CEO of Weaveworks. They begin with a deep dive into Alexis's career, beginning in finance as a trader for Goldman Sachs before his move to founding Metalogic, Cohesive Networks, and RabbitMQ. Alexis then recalls his move from the startup world to, as he puts it, the big enterprise software company VMware, where he served as a senior director. When VMware spun out Pivotal, Alexis became the head of product for Spring. This launches into a conversation about the true mission of Spring and its market importance, as well as the trials and tribulations that Alexis went through at the time, including lessons on rebuilding user trust and brand revitalization. Around the time that Kubernetes launched, Alexis founded Weaveworks. This leads to a discussion about the Weaveworks business model, as well as how Alexis sees the business evolving. Finally, Grant and Alexis's discussion turns to GitOps and how Weaveworks has leaned into commercial GitOps with their new product, Weave GitOps. Many thanks to Alexis for his time spent with us. This was a fantastic episode to record, and we really hope that you enjoy. All right, Alexis, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Grant. It's super to be here. So really excited to kind of dig into your background. How did you get into enterprise software? Yeah, it's like, how did you get into crack? (laughs) I guess I I never meant to get into enterprise software. It was passed around at parties. I originally worked at Goldman Sachs, and uh, I got into finance because I did a math degree, and I did a philosophy degree, and I was sort of spending all my time dealing with theoretical problems around logic and numbers and... Uh, that led naturally into an interest in, you know, betting. Sports betting was becoming big back in the 90s when I was at university. And I did a lot of that with my friends, but also played a lot of poker. And that gradually built up my interest in financial services as a potential job. And uh, then a friend of mine got a job at Goldman Sachs, and he said, look, I'm having fun here. Why don't you apply? So I applied, and I got a job at Goldman. And then it was in this something called the Arbitrage Group which is basically what we used to call hedge funds in those days. Mm. There were hedge funds as well. They were external to the banks, but the arbitrage group was there to be like an internal hedge fund with the bank's proprietary money and then make bets on where the markets, uh, what they would do. And I was in fixed income, which meant that I was uh, betting on interest rate movements uh, with bonds and uh, other instruments 
and also foreign exchange options and some of the other derivatives around that. This is early days of things like mortgages, so it was not so toxic as it became later on. And um, we had this great big financial explosion in 98 when uh, Russian bonds got defaulted on by the Russian government, which led to a uh, crisis when a number of hedge funds that had over-leveraged and had big bets on that were related to the performance of emerging market debt went into a kind of mini credit crunch. And I say mini because... We all know that in 2008, there was a real credit crunch, and we've seen what's happened since Mm. in terms of what can affect the general public with austerity and, uh, you know, reduction in government spending and how this thing can have a terrific impact around the world. But in those days, you know, it wasn't many at all. It felt enormous. It was shaking our world. And, um, you know, all of the core investment banks were involved in buying and selling and lending to and borrowing from each other and to these hedge funds long-term capital management being the primary one. And so when that started to display signs of trouble, people got worried. And then another similar fund at Salomon Brothers also got into trouble and shut down. And then we entered this kind of spiral of fear where everybody was um, pulling out of the market because they thought they would be next. Mm. And you know, we saw this again later on, but at the time it was very frightening, even though it it never got outside of the financial industry that time because we managed to contain it, although it did involve the Fed getting all of the heads of all these banks into a room together to fix the problem. And so after that happened, the financial industry managed to sort itself out, but a number of things changed at Goldman. And one of them was that people were less excited about making risky bets with the partner's money that would then go south if somebody else's hedge fund blew up. That wasn't very appealing because the partners didn't like to lose money. Right. And there was also an IPO that was planned. Uh, as you know from tech, you know, IPOs depend on good faith in the market. Mm -hmm. And Goldman did not want to have the reputation of being a risky bet and did not want to have the reputation of being involved at all with proprietary trading. So everything switched over to what we call the franchise, which is basically about back to the good old days of doing things for customers as the primary source of revenue, investment banking, corporate issuance, things like that. Some of my friends who were more experienced left to do hedge funds and did really well. And I stayed inside the bank and moved into the flow side, as we called it, the franchise seeing a lot of business go through the bank. And this is in the early days of electronic exchanges when we'd moved from floor trading. You've probably seen films and photographs of usually men in the trading pit shouting at each other, wearing big, colorful jackets, and buy, sell, and all this kind of thing. Uh, It used to be how a lot of trading was done. And that all became electronic in around the late 90s. And then we... uh, started to see people say, well, hey, if exchanges can go electronic, why don't we make everything electronic? And people started to uh, propose you know, automated trading systems for either making bets or providing prices in the market or doing other things. And you could see this was a time of change. The markets were sometime in the future going to become a lot more electronic. A lot of the jobs that people trusted to be done by humans could disappear at any time depending really on the level of human input required. So the things that went first were the ones where the level of human input was low. Just being in the pit wasn't very useful, so you could replace that with a screen. And then, you know, the more, um, so we say, high-value ones would take longer, but it was really a matter of time. And so, you know, another group of us decided to move on and go into tech. Some of my friends went to form, you know, things like grocery delivery companies that have been very successful, uh, one of my friends, Fred Destow, went off to be 
what is now quite a well-known VC in the tech industry. Uh, and for me, I started a tech company with a friend aimed at looking at the big need for technology inside places like Goldman Sachs. Mm-hmm. So we've been sitting there. We'd come into the bank. We'd both been pulled into high-end hedge fund style ways of trading where we basically had a command and control center all around us on our desk with boxes and screens and things that we could use to make decisions supported by amazing computing power. And we were surprised when that level of compute sophistication was not available to the general crew inside the firm, was not being used to make money electronically, it was not being used to automate trade support and all kinds of things, as well as uh, wasn't being used to create new businesses in the market. And so we thought it'd be really useful to create a tool that would be given to anyone in the financial industry, and they would run it, and they would be able to have a full suite of the financial services capabilities they could then plug into their Excel spreadsheet. So they would be able to have out of the box a customizable experience, which at its core would give them the same mathematical power as Goldman Sachs or Salomon Brothers, even if they were bank number 3000 in the market or just some new person coming in. And we did that because we could see that really what was driving the decision-making for these traders was tech. And what was required was the ability to write code so that you could process the information you were getting and turn that into decisions. So for example, you might have a bunch of prices and you might see price discrepancies compared to your model. Your model would also be based on code and your model would be saying, hey, uh, IBM is priced at 100 and, and Sun is priced at 99. And normally, you know, they trade within two to three points of each other. So why don't you, you know, sell Sun and buy IBM and bet that they're going to get further apart and guess what the model is saying. This kind of thing is very, very common. And that was considered to be very sophisticated in the 90s. We wrote a tool that would mean that anyone who could write Java could then write kind of similar programs to help them to do this kind of trading themselves very, very easily. Sounds great, doesn't it? Except that we forgot about a lot of things. Like number one, it's great you have a product, but how do you actually get customers to use it? You know, this is like reading these books about Entrepreneur 101. What is the sales model? Do you have a distribution plan? Is there any marketing involved? How do you ensure that people have heard of you? Why should they trust you? You know, you could go on and on and on all day. And, um, you know, we just did the rounds of going to get in touch with people that we knew, doing demos for people. We also did a lot of work for interdealer brokers that were early customers because they were um, less sophisticated price makers and, and risk takers than the banks, but they needed tech help. Mm. And generally speaking, what we learned is selling technology is actually really difficult. And even if your product is incredible, it doesn't mean you're really solving a customer's problem because the customer will see what their problem is. They won't see how your tool, which is abstract, fits into their problem. Mm. And so that's what we discovered without really knowing where we were, what enterprise sales was like. And then we discovered the other thing about enterprise software. It's very, very abstract and boring. So when you have a problem that a customer is saying, hey, I love your tool. I get it. I get it where you're going with this. I love the idea that you know somebody who's using an Excel spreadsheet at Goldman can do all these incredible things because they're plugged into all these systems. And you're kind of giving that power to everybody else and democratizing it. But how does that apply to me? And you think, well, okay, I could turn this into an actual app. So I could put a GUI in front of it with flashing lights and and graphs that go up and down. And I could have screens that say trading opportunity. And there would be a button saying buy 
And now I'm in the app business. I'm not selling middleware anymore. And then I can sell it to humans who were like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm somebody who knows what this does. I'm a buyer and a seller. I could buy a trading system from you. But because we were basically nerds, we didn't actually want to do that. We didn't want to build something as boring as a specific solution that would only solve the problem of one customer. We thought it'd be more sensible to build something that could solve the problem of a whole bunch of customers, not only trading customers, but also people doing other jobs in the industry as well. And also even in outside of trading, things like online betting, online gaming, all of these kind of interactive apps, pre-Ajax were a big thing in the early 2000s. And so that's when we realized that we were in the world of enterprise software, because not only had we chosen to sell to the hardest buyers in the world who really didn't want to talk to us unless we had something they obviously wanted to buy, but also we were producing a product which actually was solving a middleware problem rather than directly solving the problem that they thought they had. So we were selling software to other software people. And that is, in fact, the reality of most enterprise software is you're building tools that have incredible power as a potential platform to solve more than one problem for your customer. A lot of the value comes from them standardizing on that. But Mm -hmm. them understanding the value is hard because they don't necessarily want to standardize on your tool because that is a proprietary tool, even if you're using standard things like Java. So, you know, we get basically ended up selling enterprise software and building enterprise software because we were too bloody minded and interested in solving abstract hard problems and not really paying enough attention to customers saying, I just want a trading tool or I just want a gaming screen. And that guess that's how you get into the space is that you, you make a series of dumb decisions and then you're stuck there. I love that. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, of course. And this is Metalogic that you're talking about, right? That's the first company that you founded. Metalogic, yeah, which is not named after mathematical Metalogic, but actually because my co-founders were Finnish, thought it'd be a good idea to name it after heavy metal. <laughs> so the original brand was Metalogic with umlauts on it, and the G was like an axe, and the, some people in our company thought that was awesome. That's amazing. Okay, so you're in the middleware business. What happened to Metalogic? Like, What was the sort of end state there? Well, we got a few beta customers in the banks, um, people who could see the value. I mean, essentially what we found, I mentioned standards. I mean, what we discovered was we had written in Java a kind of equivalent to the .NET platform mm-hmm. in the sense that it was a, a framework for building a class of apps that would be useful. It was an app server that involved a number of cool technologies like caching for distribution. And as such, it was its own standalone stack. And this is at a time when if you weren't .NET, you had to be Java. And if you were Java, you had to be Enterprise Java. And if you were Enterprise Java, that meant J2EE and servlets and Enterprise Beans, which at the time people were discovering were just too damn complicated to build many apps out of. And I met a few people who had been involved in projects like Reuters Instanet, where they built a whole trading system for $20 million using J2EE. But it was clear from talking to those people that they had felt they were fighting against the tool chain. Mm. And they'd done it despite the tool chain, not because of it. And we talked to a big bank. I won't name names because it would be unfair, but one of the biggest banks in the industry had done, I think, over 100 projects using EJBs by 2002. And they reckon that only about three of them had succeeded at all. The rest of them were definitely failures. So, you know, there was this weird situation in the market where everybody was using the wrong tool. People wanted to build more web apps, but they didn't know how. We didn't have things like Ajax yet. They were emerging. And people were beginning to realize that 
Java was great, but couldn't on its own work if you use these standards that have been designed by committees of enterprise vendors. Mm. And so we had an alternative, but who cares what we had? Because our tool was from some, you know, no name company with some ex traders running it out of England and Finland. And like, frankly, who gives a shit? And we, we got a lot of good advice from, from very friendly customers. So one person said, you know, why don't you go team up with Oracle? You can stick this on top of times 10. We were also, this is in the early days of open source enterprise software like MySQL. Mm-hmm. And we actually shared an investor with uh, MySQL AB, a Swedish company. Mm. And they put me in touch with Martin Mikos. I had a phone call with him. And Martin was very, very helpful. And he said, look, you know, I think your product would be great on top of our database, but you'll have to make at least some of it open source. Otherwise, we can't distribute it. And I went back to talk to my engineers and they're like, you fucking crazy. We're not going to open source our software and give it away. <laughs> That's madness. We actually spent time working on this stuff. You know, it was that time of the markets. But all the time, what was actually happening was that um, outside of our little bubble, other people were realizing that EJBs, J2EE, and the relational backend were not enough to build the apps of the future. So we had companies like TangoSol, which is still part of Oracle now with Coherence, Solometric, which is an object relational store, uh, Interface 21, which became Spring Source, Symphony Soft, which became MuleSoft, and a bunch of other companies. Some of the, all those people are still around in the market in different places. Mm-hmm. And a few others that people have forgotten, where people were realizing what you needed was just simple Java and POJOs. People called it plain old Java objects. And of course, I think we know in retrospect that, that one group kind of broke through the barrier of there's a kind of uncanny valley that you sit in when you're near the right answer in enterprise software, but not near enough. Mm. You're recognizably what they, you look like a solution, but you're too damn ugly to let into the building. So you sit there in uncanny valley with your uncanny shitty product, and you can't understand why you can't get real sales because you're almost a product market fit. But actually, whenever you show your product to somebody, they're like, oh, no, I just don't want to use this. And what Spring did was they they tricked people into using Pojans by wrapping them around J2E Tomcat, EJBs and convincing them that you could write a pocho and then through the magic of, you know, wiring and uh, recompilation and dependency injection and inversion of control, all of the things, you could turn it into something which could be using a standard product. So you could then tell people, hey, write this in Spring, run it as you wish, in Tomcat, run it in WebLogic, run it in WebSphere, and then they, they did what MySQL had done, which is say, hey, look, don't buy WebLogic until you're ready to go into production. MySQL would say, don't buy Oracle until you're ready to go into production. Just use MySQL for free. Mm. And people would use MySQL for free, and then they'd scale up, and then some of them would buy a license, right? Of course, the models have become more sophisticated now, but that's how we thought in those days. In fact, you know, MySQL's model was even more crude. They basically just said, the GPL is going to fuck you unless you buy a dual license. Ah, you know, that was slightly strange, I thought. But, uh, you know, the, the general idea was use the free thing, treat it as a dev tool, and then when you're actually running in production, you say that you're going to move to the alternative tool, but what you'll actually find is that you're on a tool that's working. Right. And even commercial software did this. So Coherence's business with the Tango Soul, uh, Oracle, as it is now, Jcash implementation, had a free dev license and a paid-for production license, which is sold mm. on a per-server or per-node basis, I think, per CPU, I think, sorry. And they wouldn't charge you until you'd been running in production already. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they had this massive market cost of entry, but they actually got customers to trust their software and then commit to production. 
is very similar to the freemium model of open source, where you take a hit up front to do free distribution. And then if you can, you figure out an upsell point. And so, you know, this is all going on at the same time as I'm finding out the metal logic is in the, in the wrong place. It's in the uncanny valley and it's not going to be a happy, friendly piece of enterprise software. And then at the same time, as we were realizing all the things we've done wrong, we had a number of other issues, largely to do with trying to be in two countries at the same time without the infrastructure that we now have in 2021 for remote working. Mm. So I was doing customer meetings with big banks in London and then trying to explain to engineers in Finland who I was working with what the customer wanted and, you know, talk about lost in translation. You know, it wasn't easy to get the idea across. And it was just because you have a meeting, you write down some notes, you get on a plane, you go to another country, everything's different. It's just things get just scrunched up. And so actually we really should have all been in one place or had Zoom or Zencaster in this case. <laughs> and so like, did you sort of sell it, wind it down? Like, because you started another company. Yeah, we got some customers, decided to go our separate ways. The other founder and CTO got a job at a bank where he still is. Various people wanted to get married and have kids. And I decided to have another go uh, using the, the lessons I'd learned, which were open source is a way to get customers to try out your product before they need to get past the trust stage. And so this is cohesive. Yeah, Metalogic to cohesive. So yeah. cohesive came about because I wanted to do an open source company based on what I'd learned to Metalogic. Oh, cool. And this is 2006. You, you, know, you were like, okay, maybe Martin Mykonos was right and I'm going to go do an open source company, and that's Cohesive Networks, or what's now called Cohesive Networks. It was originally called just Cohesive. In fact, we went through a brief stage of being called Open Care. So we wanted to have a... We saw, saw people adopting open source. We saw the benefits of the distribution and sales model, and what we thought customers needed was support. Uh, we didn't understand what RHEL was doing in the support space. We thought there were other areas of support that we could add value to, mm. especially around a whole lot of the emerging new middleware stack. And we came up with a business plan, which was so similar to what Tidelift is doing today. That When Tidelift launched, I was like, hey, guys, this is great. You know, We actually tried to do this before, but you guys, I think, will be successful because we were just ridiculously early and there weren't enough, there just aren't enough software components to kind of support in this way. And I thought that, you know, they, their thinking actually is incredibly sophisticated. And the founder, Donald Fisher, was the person who created the RHEL product value proposition. So actually... He and a few others were the people who figured out how to make money from Linux, which was very similar to what I said, which is people need support and they need bundles and they need supported bundles, but they did it around the Linux brand. And now Tidelift is doing it again, but on a sort of more distributed basis, I guess. So we, we tried to do a supported stack and then we realized that what was really required was, because uh, we're still thinking about financial services, a, front, a middleware stack that financial services customers could use mm. that was based on Java, which is what they wanted to use, but not tied to J2EE, not tied to EJBs, not tied to all the stuff that wasn't working, but instead tied to a category of emerging tools that we were very excited about, you know, like Apache Active MQ, uh, like Spiritsoft Message Bus, like Mule ESB, like Spring Framework that we thought we could assemble into a larger offering. So I got together with some people to do that, and we couldn't quite see how to work together. So we split, and then I found another group to work with, uh, which is folks in the U.S. who um, had come out of the banking and tech sector, and that's how Cohesive was founded and became called Cohesive FT because Cohesive.com was not available as a website. 
And we were targeting financial customers, so we called it fin- Cohesive Financial Technologies. Ah, cool. And you, you started the company with a handful of other co-founders, ran it for two, three years. That, that company still exists, right? Yeah, so we, we were coming to market at a time when not only was open source becoming clearly important, but also the way that software is packaged and distributed was changing, and people were moving to software repositories as the primary source of software distribution instead of .exe files and DLLs. And um, also, people were discovering that virtualization and the cloud were providing a, an on-demand environment to run software. So if you think about Docker today, you've got those three ingredients as well. You've got like a build from source, generate a runabout artifact that will run on pretty much any infrastructure, and build a package that contains the pieces that you want. And so we thought we could build a business around a product called Elastic Server which would do essentially those things and run, you know, you'd say, this is what I want in my stack, and it would just run it on VMware for you, it would run it on EC2 for you. Mm. There are other versions of this tool. Uh, a really nice one was created by the company that Erica uh, Bacon sold to VMware. What are they called again? Oh, Bitnami. Bitnami, yeah. So Bitnami built a very similar offering and a few other people as well. We did that because we realized that customers wanted a whole runnable artifact, uh, which was supported. And we weren't in a position to build a business out of it actually supporting the individual components ourselves because we weren't hiring the developers for each of those components. While we were doing that, because we were selling to finance, we realized that there was a gap in the stack for a good middleware message bus. And JP Morgan were building a new protocol called AMQP, which was designed to be like HTTP, but for message buses and publish subscribe. Mm. So it was going to provide a standard format for describing uh, one-to-many messaging, one-to-one messaging, queues, all, all kinds of distribution patterns, and PubSub and so on, typical rendezvous and IBM, basically. So we decided maybe we should do an implementation of this and make it part of our stack as well, because it was so critical to the financial customers we were serving. And as we were doing that, um, I realized that we were now doing two products, because we had the Elastic server on the one hand, which was this kind of VM factory, and on the other hand, we had this, this message tool, which we decided to call RabbitMQ. I, I decided to call RabbitMQ, uh, which we jointly built with another company called LShift that we partnered with. And, um, you know, having an open source message tool was fundamental and very, very useful for the other business, but it wasn't necessary for the other business. Also, it could easily go off and be its own thing. So I found myself increasingly in two jobs. Like one is trying to look after RabbitMQ and focus on getting customers by leading with messaging and then talking about what they were going to do with the cloud mm. and these new next-generation apps around virtualization and so on. And on the other hand, just talking about the virtualization stuff. And so I felt that I couldn't do both of those things and I had to decide which one of those to focus on and decided to leave and focus just on RabbitMQ. Uh, so I retained some shares in Cohesive. Around about that time, uh, what we discovered was that you know there were a bunch of very specific problems around the applications that you would build using virtual machines and the cloud that required things like networking and security. So you basically end up setting up, you know, virtual perimeters for yourself. So you know how VPC works in Amazon today, right? Sure. This is back in 2008, 2009, 2010. You know, people needed on-demand VPCs. They needed them to be hybrid across the cloud and the enterprise. And so 
Cohesive decided to double down on that opportunity and really focus in on Cohesive Networks, which is basically the backbone of virtual applications, and sell that to enterprises basically as an appliance. Mm. And I decided to leave at the same time and go off and really focus on RabbitMQ, which was being used to run the virtual networks, but was really a tool that was very generic and was powerful and was suited to many things. So this is exactly the same stupid decision that I made when I did Metalogic, because I decided not to do the specific application, but instead to really double down on the general purpose middleware tool. So as I say, enterprise software is a highly addictive environment. (laughs) But I mean, so, I mean, RabbitMQ has been quite successful. So was there sort of instant adoption or did it take a little while to sort of get people to start using it? What were the early days of that like? How long did you stay at Cohesive before you actually decided to go off and run Rabbit Technologies? That's it. Cohesive for about a year and a month before I left to do Rabbit full-time. And then I think um, took another year of just focusing on Rabbit, and then we started to raise money. And we, while we were raising money, we got an acquisition offer from VMware, which was actually Spring Source because they had been acquired by VMware in the summer of 2009. And they were a partner company of ours. You remember I was looking at Spring a few years earlier as the basis for the applications, the next application stack. Right. And VMware apl- acquired Spring Source for that very reason. They wanted to have a VMware-based modern middleware stack that they could offer to customers to expand a vSphere footprint and sell into people using application middleware. So um, I had to decide with my colleagues, uh, should we take the VC money and go for it on our own? Or should we you know, double down on just being part of a big company? And we had a vote and decided to go with the kind of bird in the hand option. It felt much more risky in those days than it does today to do a standalone commercial open source company. You know, we had worked very, very hard to get adoption. We had used a lot of different techniques to make sure that our product was used and paid for by the right people. So there's a lot of community development, market development, positioning work, sales work, product work to be done before we got acquired. When we, at the time of acquisition, we had about 300 production users that we were tracking. There were more that we didn't track and about 30 paying customers. And uh, that number was growing quickly and we had a lot of community clients being built. The one thing that I found difficult was when I was looking for money, I tried Silicon Valley and everybody there basically just said, oh no, you can't make money out of messaging and integration. That's ridiculous. Nobody's going to fund that. Right. Remember very clearly um, Peter Fenton at Benchmark saying, this is silly, Alexis. You should just, you know, go take take rods off and go work at Spring Source. It's a good, good thing to sell a company. And then a few years later, he founded Kafka, and I saw him not long afterwards. I said, but, but Peter, yeah. you know, why are you funding, you know, Kafka and you didn't fund messaging? And he's like, oh, it's a completely different thing. This is data streaming. And I'm like, dude, you have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> but um, they've done incredibly well. So, you know, hats off to them. But I think, you know, the point is that it was just a different time and very hard to see how to make anything successful at all. So everything was, there was nobody to copy, nobody to follow. And we had a few ideas which I thought were pretty important. Like um, we had this idea of, you know, make the product easy to use because everything else that we saw was hard to use. And if somebody asks for help, you have to answer them within two days. If it's on the mailing list and immediately if it's in person and try and be nice and there's no such thing as a bad question and, I found out later on that this is something that people really, really, really valued. I bumped into Kelsey Hightower many years later when he was just starting his career, and at least in the public eye, you know, as this kind of cloud native superhero. 
and he was still a chorus then, he said, RabbitMQ was one of the first pieces of software he encountered after getting into the industry from what he was doing before. And he really liked it compared to other software because it was easy to use. Mm. And he'd spent his uh, previous career, uh, he's had a few years as a kind of sysadmin, uh, installing software and hardware for customers at a retail level. And he found there was a very clear difference between, you know, when those things were easy to use and when they were hard to use. And you could see that, you know, normal people could be very successful with tech if it was if somebody made an effort to document it properly and to have good UX. And he liked Rabbit because it had sort of done some of those decisions as well. So I was very flattered by that. And I thought that, you know, it meant that we did some things right. But we still had a lot of foot slogging to do. Like we had to um, go and find people in different communities to take up our product and start to use it and champion it. So that's how we got into Debian and Ubuntu. And we got into um, the Ruby community through Heroku and Engineard and a few other people around that group. I used to spend a lot of my time in SF, hanging out in the Thirsty Bear with the founders of those companies because, and then I've also places down in you know 10th Avenue, whatever it's called, 10th Street, because I needed to be there to talk to them about this product. And I could see that they were building these cloud apps that could scale with messaging. Mm. And that was our basic bet, was that messaging was a tool that had been used in the past to make scalable financial services apps like trading systems, like the kind of Metalogic target apps. And remember that when I did Metalogic, we had these interactive applications, but actually what people were using was typically an app server and a message bus to build that pattern instead of what we provided them with. So the same um, use cases were arising in 2009 and 10 on Silicon Valley because people were building these high-scale cloud services, for instance. So you know, Twilio, Engineard, Heroku, and others. So I spent a lot of my time with them, helping them to be successful with those tools. And then after we went to VMware, we carried on working on Rabbit for a bit. Redis came in with us because we'd been working with Salvatore a little bit too. So we're, we were the Rabbit and Redis team for a bit. And then we got fully merged into Spring and Cloud Foundry when Pivotal was launched. You know, what's nice about Rabbit is that it's kind of carried on growing at the same rate since 2007. Yeah despite the fact that um, the team's changed several times. And I think that shows not only the quality of the different individuals who've been involved, but also the underlying build is sound. Yeah, I mean, and the need's there, right? The build, the need, everything, yeah, of course. And so, I mean, like when you joined VMware, this is sort of reintroduced to big company because you'd been at startups for a while and that since you left Goldman. But this is your first kind of like tried and true enterprise software company that you're joining what lessons did you learn inside of VMware? What was challenging? What was interesting? And what were the sort of you know things you came away with after that experience? Well, by the time I got to VMware, you know, as you say, we'd learned that the critical things were figure out the sales problem, have a marketing model, which in this case was open source distribution, solve a real need, which is scaling, identify that your customers with that need, help them succeed early on, very critical, find distribution partners to help you scale, people like Ubuntu. And, you know, have the right commercial model, which is freemium in this case, free, then jump up to something paid, all of which we just had to learn the hard way. And I feel was just a pretty good lesson, basically. So that was a sort of early success. Share some of those details around the distribution. Like, what did that partnership look like with Ubuntu and Debian? Like, what were the details there? So we had this concept of rock stars and platforms, where if you were talking about a, we, some communities were basically tribal, and they were led by rock stars like Ruby was all about Ezra, may he rest in peace, 
and the Heroku leaders and the GitHub people and other smart, cool kids around the area. And then um, Linux was a set of platforms, RHEL, Fedora, Canonical, Ubuntu, Debian, etc. And we chased after the platform market because Red Hat, our competitor, was doing an alternative implementation of AMQP called Cupid mm. in the Red Hat platform and chasing after a different customer. And by the way, another crucial lesson was don't look too fucking weird. You know, if you have a product, make sure people understand where it fits into their world. It's a message bus and it implements AMQP, which is sponsored by JP Morgan. And it's a new thing, which is going to disrupt IBM. End of story. You know, we had a few sexy things like Erlang, which at the time was of interest to the Ruby community because it was a kind of another functional language that had more power. But fundamentally, it was the platform market for Ubuntu. Um, what we did was there was a whole ecosystem around Debian, which is an upstream feeder into Ubuntu at those times. And you had to get talk to people called the masters of the universe, the Motus, and they would help you to create Debian packages, which could then be put into upstream builds and you'd make it into a release. Mm. And Ubuntu worked in much the same way. We were helped by a lovely person called Elliot Murphy. I remember sitting at my parents' house one Christmas on Christmas Eve, learning about, you know, GPG for the first time because I had to get my packages signed to get them into Ubuntu on time. And once you were in Ubuntu, then everybody who had a disk on the front of a magazine would be able to install your, your RabbitMQ wherever they were going. Uh, okay. And that would, that would kick off a whole other thing, which was basically commercial upsell opportunities. Ubuntu had a model called Universe, which was an outside ring of untested packages. And they had an inner core of curated, approved packages that had a number of properties like they could get support and so on. So we gradually moved from the universe into core. Mm. That's when I met Steve George, who's the CEO of WeWorks today, because Canonical said, hey, why don't you do a sort of business deal where we can resell your support so that customers asking for Rabbit support on Canonical can get that, all of this kind of thing. It's very similar to the kind of marketplace models that people are doing in the cloud today. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, those are all pretty important things we had to do. And that was all while you were, you know, at VMware, right? You sort of this is before VMware, before even before VMware. So this is like you. I mean, that's pretty quick to manage to pull all that together, build the product, get the distribution, start to really build some community and success. I mean, all within like a basically two years, right? Two to three years, yeah, yeah. And then and then the acquisition by VMware, integrate it with their platform, roll it out, and then I'm guessing it became part of a larger support, you know, purchase license with them. So. VMware basically had a number of different ideas about how to sell in this market, which they were trying out. And the one that we got pulled into most at the beginning was called vFabric. And vFabric was a standalone virtualized middleware stack, which is available in two pay-for editions. One was a kind of standard stack, and one was advanced with more things in it. And the standard stack was basically Tomcat, pay-for edition, Rabbit, pay-for edition, and a couple of other things. And it was a, a lightweight alternative to buying WebSphere. Uh, in fact, you could argue it was similar to buying WebSphere Community Edition, mm. but with Spring around it instead of just you know uh, EJBs and stuff. And we sold that to what I called Oracle and IBM refugees. So basically, people who had made an investment in J2EE, which was um, painful and expensive, who'd realized that Spring was a better way out, mm. and then wanted to shift to a lightweight, more lean less expensive, more cost-effective middleware base, which they could pay for you know, a few hundred bucks a node a year at scale instead of two or 3,000 for the, for the competing alternative. 
And there is a market for that where you have like an established app server type market and people get renewals every one or three years. And every time they do that, you've got a chance to win over, let's say, five, 10,000 licenses. And your customer's making a cost saving of maybe 50%, maybe 70% on the base. There's usually an app driving it too. So there was quite a lot of processor building new apps out on top of this stuff. But it was basically identical to just selling middleware, except that it was provided as VMs to VMware customers. But actually, that turned out to be less important than just selling the middleware. And what was the difference between the pay-for version and the and the sort of community edition? No, both versions were pay-for. There was a standard version, which contained fewer components. Okay. And there was a so-called advanced version, which contained some additional components, which were designed to help you orchestrate complicated applications. But like, were there two versions of RabbitMQ, in the, or, or was there three versions of RabbitMQ? We ended up making a commercial edition of RabbitMQ at the time, which had a JMS client in it. And we just, we did that because the people who wanted JMS were all deep enterprise buyers. Mm. And they also wanted to do, they wanted strong alignment with the whole J2E model, which had things like distributed transactions in it. And we didn't support the full DTX model, but we supported enough of it and had integration with Spring so that people could get more done in that idiom if that's what they wanted. And so if you go talk to, I remember a customer at the time that would be typical of this would be Amex. And they'd like, you know, have tons of apps using J2E and JMX to manage and monitor them. And, you know, all of the tools were in place and they wanted to use the new stack, but it needed to have some, you know, pre-established APIs around it to make it easier to integrate. Another example was Cisco. So, I mean, that's how you do your enterprise version. Today, what people tend to do is they tend to go for the free version being uh, fully functional and the pay-for version being solving some problem associated with scale or security. So a good example of that would be Terraform or Vault from HashiCorp. Mm-hmm. The more you do with those tools at enterprise scale, the more you're pushed to premium and enterprise versions because they're solving problems that are addressed by larger scale use. Right. And that's good because that means if you make your free tool one that encourages productivity, then it will self-replicate until you get to a scale point. Yeah, and then, I mean, I think their perspective there is like, eventually you need all of this like compliance and other management and we're going to put those sort of features into the enterprise edition and you'll you'll pay for that if you're using it at, at enough scale. And then let's move into the pivotal so you're kind of building this spring platform you know across the board at VMware they spin out pivotal and then you end up as like the head of product for spring. Like I don't know much about spring. I mean I, I kind of understand a little bit about it based on what you're saying here but like What's the core concept behind Spring? It's still quite popular. Like, what other partners were involved? Like, give me the rundown on Spring and like why it's important. So, when I was in charge of Spring, it had about three or four million users. That was about fifty percent of the Java developer population, as we thought it was at the time. We had a million unique visitors to the website. Wow! And we had a number of other, you know, significant metrics. I mean, Rabbit and Redis. And Tomcat also had very good numbers, but not not at that level. And so we could see that we had this kind of umbilical or mental or maybe metaphysical connection, astral connection, if you like, with the enterprise developer. We were one of the standard tools. And that's why Paul Moritz, the CEO of VMware, thought I'll buy SpringSource as a means to get into the enterprise developer because they're using Java. So... What had happened was that because of a bunch of reasons to do with how the acquisition worked, politics at VMware, 
different personalities involved and some other decisions that you know we don't need to go into here. Basically, spring had been a bit neglected, and a few, quite a few people had left. There were still some fantastic developers. I mean, really, spring is about the development engineering team ultimately, and whoever is around that in a product or marketing role succeeds or fails to the extent that they can actually work with the core development team. So it's truly a great open source project. And there were still some brilliant engineers there. Some of them had been pulled off to other tasks, like, you know, helping with Cloud Foundry or something. But basically, about half of the core team was still there. But the whole kind of coherence and mission had been lost because of these sort of flip-flop decisions and whatever, and then Pivotal was around. And so we had this thing that still had great numbers, but didn't seem to have any kind of plan or reason to stick around, as a result of which some people would say, well, this thing is dead. I mean, it was bought when it was 70% of the way through its lifetime. It had already done its job, which is to make IBM and Oracle give up the ghost in terms of trying to control the Java stack. And it reduced the prices in that market down to affordable levels for the whole market and it commoditized everything. And now it's done. So why don't we just fuck it? And the counter-argument to that was, dude, you know, if you go to any customer, they're all using Spring. Even the ones that say they're not using Spring are using Spring somewhere. And, okay, maybe they're using it for web apps, but that doesn't mean they can't use it for other things. And people are like, no, don't be ridiculous. Spring is about web apps. I'm like, no, 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 no. You know, let's have a look at Netflix, LinkedIn, Twitter, about 10 or 12 companies at the time, which are big name, West Coast, Cloud First companies, all of which are writing Java code, LinkedIn, Kafka, Hadoop from Yahoo. And these were all done outside of JTUE. Why do people want to use Java but not use Spring? It's clear that the enterprise trusts Java. It's clear the next generation of big digital cloud-first companies trust the JVM, even if they don't trust JTUE. Why can't we give this new generation of tool capabilities back to the enterprise customer base we already have. Because after all, we're here to write a cloud platform. So we could have a cloud platform based on, hey, look at Amazon. Amazon has these services on it. We could have a bunch of, think of it like a set of Amazon services. You know, you've got the thing that does messaging. You've got the thing that does big data. You've got the other thing and the other thing. And if we don't have it in the spring stack, we can't use our existing vFabric stack for it. Let's go and use a Netflix tool or a LinkedIn tool or a Twitter tool, or a dot, 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 because they're all open source. And they're all being curated by dedicated teams inside those companies that would love to see their project used outside the company much more, but don't have the first idea how to scale it or support it or do anything. I spoke to the person who ran open source at LinkedIn, and he said, oh, no, I've gone. You should talk to Ariel Cyclin. And he said, oh, no, I've gone. Ariel's now at Scale VP. if you ever go talk to them. It's an amazing guy because he took the time out of his day to say, Alexis, you should talk to this person at Netflix if you want to understand Netflix's point of view on open source, because he was there before. And I spoke to Diane, who's a Netflix, who ran the Spinnaker project and all of the Netflix OSS. And I said to her, hey, Diane, I've got this. I really want to ask you something. I know that I'm just like this strange person calling you from England. And she said, um, okay. So I said, look, you launched Netflix OSS a couple of years ago, and you've got these great tools, and you put them all under the one brand, and you were expecting the market to pick them up. So then you could say... We have a standard tool chain that you can run on any cloud and then use that to negotiate Amazon on some price concerns because you've got portability, uh, maybe, and nothing happened. You know, nothing happened because actually, let's face it, Netflix is writing tools for its own use, 
not for other people's use. Any other people using your tools are doing so coincidentally. And this is early days for open source at Netflix. You haven't really made a huge effort to make them supportable by the broad community. You don't have a community manager. You don't have an open source team dedicated to outbound. Why should you? You're Netflix. You're making money from the movies, right, and television. And she said, yeah, absolutely. You know, we, things are great in Netflix OSS. We have a great tool chain. But at the same time, the Netflix OSS official goal of becoming like an industry project hasn't been successful because really Netflix just want to make software for itself. It's great that we get to do open source and create new tools like Spinnaker that we can give away. But ultimately, you know, we're not here to become long-term Spinnaker company or the other company or the other company. And it'd be great if other people did that. And I'm like, okay, well, here's why I'm calling them because here over at, at VMware Spring, Pivotal Spring, we have the opposite problem, which is, you know, we've got this incredible brand. We've got loads of enterprise users. We know how to do support. We know how to run communities. We can run conferences. We have websites. We have events. We can do everything. The one thing we don't have is anything useful that people want to build cloud services out of. So, you know, we'll have to build it from scratch or work with you. We could take Netflix OSS and wrap Spring around it and then ship that over to every Spring customer. And I was having the same conversation about Hadoop with people at Pivotal working with Hadoop. You can be more successful with Spring Hadoop than with just the Yahoo Hadoop API. Some skepticism involved here. And we had a number of other things going on. So we had this idea of a next generation runtime that would get rid of all of the things that people didn't like in Spring, uh, which was all the XML scaffolding. People would moan about it, similar to how they moan about YAML in, in Kubernetes, and just have you know opinionated uh, conventional code, which could then be overridden by um, developers' own opinions if necessary, but generally provided a simple happy path you know, we had a concept of a platform which would involve coupling that to a distribution mechanism so that you could attach a number of other sub-packages to your core runtime. And then you'd have a new spring runtime that could run cloud services. But we were missing the cool stuff. We were missing Netflix and missing Hadoop. And so I'm super excited to be talking to the person running Netflix OSS and we're having this conversation. And she says, well, Alexis, this all makes perfect sense. And I'm thinking, you know, fist pump. And then she says, there's only one problem. What's that? I really fucking hate spring. Oh, All right, okay. Just you or just everybody? And she said, well, it's kind of a big problem here at Netflix. It's just not really just me. And I'm like, okay, tell me more. And she said, well, what do you like? Do you like Scarlet? Yeah, I'm more of a Scarlet girl, she said. Okay. Right. So, we, you know, I could see the problem is that Spring's reputation was a little frayed and it had missed its early chance for renewal. It could have taken when it first came into VMware. VMware had stupidly neglected it, let a lot of the good people go. And the other good people were demoralized. So we, we were kind of on the back foot. Anyway, we had this idea for turning it into a runtime for cloud services, which could let you write things in Groovy as well as Spring. And I showed it to Diane on the call. And she said, said you know what? I could imagine writing software in this new thing without being sick. Um, but the only problem is that um, I can't talk about it right now because we don't have anybody here who would use it. But we're very happy to try this out in the future. So long story short, they tried it out a few months later and... Um, got such good support from Brian Dussault and David Sire and Randy McLean and some of the other members of the core Spring team that they decided to bet on the next generation of Spring. And if that hadn't happened, I think we wouldn't be having this conversation about Spring today. But then we brought Netflix OSS into Spring and had a bunch of Spring cloud wrappers. We did the same story with Hadoop. We did the same trickery with some of the other release it mm. uh, patterns. And um, you know, you see the results. And now it has many more millions of users the platform tool and the new website we created for it, spring.io, has got something like hundreds of millions of downloads a month. And it's all because 
we took the opportunity slightly out of the line of sight of the community because people were very focused on Cloud Foundry to have a chance to rethink things. And there were other things too, like the people who were working on it were just such high quality developers. And one or two of them who were driving the core ideas, the inventors of it, like Dave, for example, uh, and others, like Phil, had really spent quite a few years feeling, frankly, quite depressed and wondering what they were getting wrong about interaction with users because they could see that Spring was introducing these terrific new features, but they weren't getting the kind of excitement and buzz from users that they used to. What was wrong? So, you know, this whole second generation was, was definitely involved many, many, many people and great moving parts and things like that. So now it goes back to enterprises trust Java and now they have tools they can use. How did you like revitalize the perception of the brand, right? If you have all these people that hate Spring and then you come out with version two. Very simple. We basically just attach the brand to other brands. Uh, so it's like, if you want to use Netflix, it turns out to be easier to use Spring. Uh, got it. And that was successful. And if you're already using Spring and you're a bit worried that you're using the, the old tool that's becoming a bit uncool, don't worry, because now you can see that it's also attaching to the cool kid stuff. So like, imagine that, okay, so we had these meetings with uh, one of the investors in uh, Pivotal, was GE. And this is just after GE had set up that big center in San Ramon. And it's like, again, this is going to be the new world headquarters of software. Actually, what they did was they did something really smart, which is that they realized that the Silicon Valley had a bit of an ageism problem. And there were loads of incredibly talented people with families who were aged between 35 and 45, who were struggling to get jobs at hip startups because because they look too fucking wrong, because people are ages motherfuckers. <laughs> and instead could work at GE and they get a car and a house and a job for and a school nearby for the two kids. Really got good model. And they thought, hey, these people are underserved by the market. Let's make them really comfortable and happy and give them some cool stuff to do. And I remember talking to those people at these kind of meetups who would have, and they're super excited because They've been on the sort of architect track now for a few years, and they're now an architect in charge of other architects. This is the kind of role you have in these large companies. Mm -hmm. And they've been using Spring for five years. And deep, deep down, they know that there's something not quite right. We're just doing web apps using EJBs with Spring wrappers around them because it's 2012 now. And people stopped doing that in 2008. And now you show them, hey, look, you can do this thing which runs in the cloud and uses Netflix, and you can do a circuit breaker which means that now you are back on the forefront of technology. Mm. So you're working at this big trusted company, which is very important because you've got family, you've got a partner and children and all this stuff that you're looking after with this salary. You're not going to take risks because that, but you're getting to work with the coolest technology, building the hot new things. And this is how that you make a, an existing spring developer happy because you give them something back that was lost. And it's also how you win the hearts and minds of people who are, saying, well, Spring's lost interest for me from outside. So you say, you know, look, actually, these cool tools that you want to use, you can use even more if you get into the whole Spring framework. Now, it doesn't work with everybody. But what was one of the cool things about this um, platform concept that I think Maven has used under the hood to create these package distributions is that you could take existing combinations of software and make them available for sharing so that we'd have a, a Docker Hub-style download center for different packages. And again, that means that the bound barrier to entry for solving real problems is reduced because somebody goes, hey, I can get this thing which already solves my problem. And all of that is how you win the trust back. Yeah, that's super helpful. And I will say that I was involved at some important moments, but you know this change took many, many, many years. And I left Pivotal in May, June 2014. And it wasn't really until, I'd say, 16, 17, that this thing was out of the woods. 
So you should talk to people who were there for the next couple of years and get their take because it was an interesting time as well. Yeah, I mean, that's a hard transition for any kind of brand to make and rebuild that trust and to get folks back to believing. But I think your point of work with these sort of influential brands and then help like have a halo effect from them is a really, really great insight. So now you're still a pivotal Kubernetes launches. You found Weave. Like, tell how did Weave Works get started? Like, what's the context there? So we were at Pivotal. In addition to, I was spending most of my time on Spring, but also trying to stay involved with the Rabbit and Redis teams. Wanted to have an enterprise Redis offering and a Rabbit as a service, the Cloud Foundry and View Fabric. And we were all moving towards a Cloud Foundry based market model where we'd say, whatever you do, just buy Pivotal Cloud Foundry. Mm. And then all the other things around the side will be jammed into there somehow. So vFabric components will be refactored, reprovisioned into the new model and so on. Uh, at one point, the whole thing was called Platform One, which I thought was a better name. Anyway, so what we found was that writing cloud services like Rabbit as a service was not really easy inside the Cloud Foundry model, because really you're building something inside Heroku, which actually should be sitting outside Heroku mm. as a backend service. At the time I'm talking about 2013, Cloud Foundry's architecture looked a lot like Heroku did at the time. I mean, it's diverged since then. Right. There are some technical reasons like, you know, Cloud Foundry load balances through the web server and the database connection. And actually, what you really want is just one tier of Rabbit service with some TCP in front of them um, instead of HTTP connections and so on. So, and then the same for Redis. And the hard things are sort of doing things like billing, quotas, distributing users across your farm, managing the farm capacity efficiently, 24-7 uptime, you know, log rotation, all of those classic software as a service things. And there wasn't much in Cloud Foundry to help you do that, to have these additional add-ons. So then Docker arrives, and I could see that you know it had all the right ingredients of the thing that we've been looking at. If you've been in this space since 2005, messing around with this problem set from all different directions, you know, you start to get pattern recognition as to what is going to be useful here. And, you know, there were things in Docker that were already identical to stuff that was in Cloud Foundry already, but it was also pulled out of the PaaS and made its own thing. And it had its own packaging model, its own runtime. It retained its portability. And critical to all of this was that it was oriented towards developers using these operating tools. And previously, with Cloud Foundry and Heroku, and also a lot of the stuff that I'd messed around with before that, these were very operator-centric environments. And Docker seemed to be the first thing that said, this can be a developer-facing thing with the same granularity as operator tools without being a full PaaS. And it might be more useful to have portable, fast containers that are a package runtime that you can run anywhere than to have VMs or applications in the PaaS. It's a radical idea. You know, we could see that this is how you could build. You could build a relatively portable data-oriented messaging service this way, caching service this way, and you could do a lot of other things this way. Like, you know, you wouldn't believe how many customers we'd work with around the build an application out of VMs model. And we'd seen some successes, but at the end of the day, it's like using Lego and you're using, you know, Duplo, which is the like the, the Lego for two-year-olds, the giant bricks. Instead, what you want is modern Lego with tiny little bricks that you can make more kind of complex things out of that resemble real things. And the Duplo is just very limiting. It could only fit together in certain ways. It was big and clunky. You know, it's an analogy, obviously. And, you know, containers just seem to be a lot closer to what people needed as the component model. So we just thought, okay, let's leave and focus on containers. 
And um, I reunited with uh, the CTO of Rabbit, Matthias, who uh, worked with me creating Rabbit in the first place and stayed at VMware with me. Uh, he previously founded L-Shift, which is the company we partnered with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we thought, you know, just the market is very unclear. Mm-hmm. Why don't we just build something that seems to be useful? And we'd been experimenting a bit and could see that software-defined networks were very, very powerful tools when it came to creating these cloud services. And we thought that was one of the things application developers would need. So we wrote WeaveNet. That became popular pretty quickly because there was no network at the time. And then we got some funding and fairly rapidly moved on to trying to build out more tools. Funnily enough, uh, WeaveWorks was founded on the 10th of July, 2014, which is within seven days of Kubernetes being announced. And I remember just thinking, wow, what a stupid name. This is typical of Google (laughs) to pick a stupid name for a technology. But actually, they did a really good thing. It took us a while to get our heads around Kubernetes. We started using it fairly early on, but it took us at least another 18 months to kind of trust it as a platform. Mm -hmm. And 18 months of that time was also spent kind of slightly losing faith in, in Docker a little bit as the center of the universe and more as a component of the universe, which I think is probably a better place. Yeah, that's kind of it on the Kubernetes front. Yeah, I mean, so so you started Weave and it was Weave Works, and you basically built it around this idea of of networking to start, right? So that was the first product was WeaveNet, and it's kind of like you're still an open source project that's quite popular. People use to sort of run the network, but it was all around Docker, sort of Docker. You know, you sort of had the same insight that we did, which was containerization was like going to change the way that applications were developed and deployed. It was this new platform shift. Did you see the like sort of business model? Was it like, okay, we're, we're going to open source this product and then we're going to build more products. We're going to then do an enterprise version, a supported version. Like, How did you sort of imagine the business evolving? Yeah, I think that's where we probably should have thought a little bit harder. So one of the things I learned at Pivotal was Spring just had so many users and Rabbit had so many users and Redis had so many users and we were not really doing a good enough job to maximize our marketing and sales to that developer base. And if we assume that they would also be using containers and moving into the cloud, there should be a developer-centric, bottoms-up marketing model for selling people um, products and solutions that took advantage of the very large population of developers rather than doing the one-by-one enterprise sales that we'd seen ourselves doing at VMware and Pivotal. So we'd had these sort of split brain scenario where we'd had very popular developer tools, but no direct market sales motion for them. Instead, we'd sold to large enterprises that were using those tools. And there was very little connection between those two. There was no customer journey or progression. Mm. Uh, It was all outbound sales. And it was basically based on things like application modernization and so on. And I thought that we could do this with containers and we could start with networking and then build management monitoring tools around that, which would help people see how their applications were behaving and let them manage them better. The problem was that we chose to do this in an orchestrated neutral way. And we also chose to only address the developer end of the market. And as it turns out, those are two both wrong things to do because you couldn't really do any kind of management and monitoring without talking to the orchestrator more than we were doing. I mean, we're talking to it a bit, but we're not enough to really drive change. Yeah, the other mistake was to think that developers would present this kind of homogeneous market that we could sell to, but actually all these developers are doing different things. They were using different tools, free Docker, paid Docker, ECS, free Kubernetes, different ways of using Kubernetes from different vendors, Mesosphere, Marathon, blah, 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 blah. And so it was very hard to tap into that market coherently 
without a very, very clear value proposition. And even then, there just weren't enough people using the cloud because people were stuck doing enterprise problems with containers. So it took us a while to um, adjust to that. You know, we wrote a SaaS product, which was aimed at solving problems, day two problems for developers using apps in the cloud and found that, you know, people liked it, but they came back and they said, we love your app. We might even use it when we get to day two, but right now we're really stuck just getting our first thing working with Kubernetes. And you hear this again and again and again, and then suddenly you realize that people are going to be more interested in the Kubernetes infrastructure that you've built to run the app, the SaaS app, than the SaaS app itself. So that's when we flipped our business upside down and said, right, we're just going to sell this Kubernetes know-how. Um, there were some pieces in common, like our SaaS used the tool called Flux, which I think used a replicated mm-hmm. to do deployments. But we were also using that to deploy our Kubernetes stacks for our SaaS as well. So that was a key piece of open source that we continued to push. And then we started talking about GitOps, which was the description we came up with for how we were managing our whole infrastructure environment automatically. And there were very specific things about that, which we've talked about endlessly in public. So, uh, you know, then we became an enterprise software company. And I'd sworn when I started WeaveWorks that we were not going to get on a plane to see a customer ever again. <laughs> and we would just do the SaaS thing Amazing. and it would be developer first and it would be great because people would just put their credit cards into the window on their screen and everything would be perfect. We'd just sit there making money. And obviously that was really stupid. Not only because the market wasn't there, the need wasn't there, but it would be too early. The market was fragmented. It was really an enterprise market. Our whole go-to-market was wrong. I talked to a friend of mine who's a VC, Lenny Pruss, and he was saying, oh, yeah, I was involved with Datadog in the early days, and they spent ages hand-holding their SaaS customers before the whole thing became what you now see, which is this apparently seamless and easy self-service experience. And you're going, wow, they've really cracked it. There were years and years and years of pain of wondering where the whole SaaS flywheel was going to come from because every single customer needed unique amounts of love and attention. Yeah. And I just that's when I realized that... Um, we just didn't nearly have enough budget to do this as a SaaS offering. We were nowhere near what we needed to be. But what we did have was a group of people with some great open source that we built for deploying and managing Kubernetes. Plus, we knew how to do enterprise sales because of the sheer brutality of having done it for 15 years. So we had folks who'd done it with Linux. We had folks who'd done it with middleware. We had folks who'd done it with other things too. So that's what we've been doing since about 2015, set 16 or thereabouts. Yeah, I mean, in... This is one so common. Everybody's like, I don't want to do enterprise sales anymore. I just want to like get credit cards, and you know, there's no salespeople. There's no. It's like I just. Well, I don't mind having salespeople, but they can be remote and they can do inside sales, or they can be SDRs. But actually, sure. no, that's all bullshit. You, you've got to have the usual people, yeah. and that critical to your business. Yeah, if you're going to build a company like in our space, I mean, potentially with just with our know-how too, right? Like the products that we build, the things we know how to do are probably more tailored towards the the enterprise market. But I mean, you know, several things that you've done so well at WeaveWorks, like the GitOps movement, you know, you really defined it. And it's, I don't know, like, I think it's a foundation of, of infrastructure software. And I think you've done a great job of sort of really describing that out to the world and helping people understand and adopt it. Do you feel like you're commercializing GitOps as well as you could? Or like what's are there sort of like more visions around how to kind of commercialize GitOps? Or is it more about, you know, hey, we just want to be like use GitOps as the spear to be a great Kubernetes partner for people over time? Uh, I think we're entering a phase with our new product, Weave GitOps, 
where we'll be commercializing it much more explicitly. Cool. Go have a look at that. It's early days. I mean, we've basically got a bunch of enterprise GitOps features, which used to be part of our Weave Kubernetes platform that are now part of Weave GitOps Enterprise. And we're leaning into GitOps much more there now. And we're doing a lot with our Kubernetes partners. So we have the ability to deploy clusters and manage them for you if you want. We do a lot of that with things like telcos on bare metal, 5G edge. But there are also many, many cases where there's a perfectly good Kubernetes in there already. Maybe it's Rancher, maybe it's OpenShift, maybe it's Replicated, maybe it's EKS, you know, dot, dot, dot. Maybe it's all of these things. That's another thing we see quite a bit. They've bought everything. And you want to go up a level and you want to focus on GitOps for applications, progressive delivery, canaries, and then do this for fleet management and do it full stack. You know, I want to deploy this cluster with these add-ons to have an ML stack. So all of that is where GitOps is taking us. And then you need to integrate things like security and policy into there to make it enterprise ready. The bridge between that and our free products is through you know the middle tier. So we've got a still very early bundle called Weave GitOps Core, which is the entry point to that. But that'll take us much more to a HashiCorp style model where you go free upstream in the foundation, free entry point, and then up into the upsells from there because people just want to do GitOps. And that means that we can be a great GitOps partner for anyone doing anything with Kubernetes, quite frankly. Um, most of our business at the moment is with cloud partners, but we are doing a lot direct and we'd be happy to take on more partners. I would say that we very, very deliberately decided at the beginning of all of this that we weren't going to try and turn GitOps into a product or something we could copyright or merchandise or lay claim to mm -hmm. because it felt a lot like DevOps, but something that had a, could have a more precise definition. And I agree with mm -hmm. you. If you really understand what's going on, it's truly foundational and absolutely critical. And it's actually how everything is going to operate eventually, which is not there yet. You know, there's so many great pieces, infrastructure as code and so on. And it's an industry job to get that. So there's no point in any one company trying to be the controller of all of it. You know, we can say we're the GitOps company, but frankly, so can anybody else. Uh, what we didn't want to see happen is diffusion, like DevOps and Agile, which kind of means something, but also, mm. you know, we all recognize by family resemblance and pattern recognition when things are really not Agile when things are really not DevOps, but we can very easily disagree about when two things are and how they differ. So um, we wanted something that could be a bit more precise. So did um, Amazon, Microsoft, CodeFresh, and Red Hat, and some others. So we formed this GitOps working group initiative mm. inside CNCF, an existing trusted foundation for company-neutral collaboration. And I, th I, don't, I can't remember whether the replicators are involved in that conversation, but there's a whole group of community people who are sort of helping to gradually sort of write down a relatively simple definition of GitOps so people understand, you know, what it means for the simple cases and then things like fleets and templates and scale and so on. I love that. And that will allow people to be a little bit more precise. We're still going to get ridiculous disagreements, but it will mean that it's less of a, you know, a joke when people do. So, yeah, I think we're going to lean into GitOps more commercially. But also, we're not there saying we're the only people with a GitOps capability, right? Because that would be silly. Yeah, I mean, it's not GitOps TM. It's like GitOps. You know, this is a thing that we believe in, and it's a philosophy, and it's a pattern that you know everyone's going to be using over time. That makes a lot of sense. We've been big fans of it. I mean, Mark, my co-founder, you know, has been a massive GitOps supporter since the first blog post, and it just made so much sense to him. So 
yeah, I think it's a that's really smart to sort of move into that more and more as your a product around it and sort of a real strategy around helping companies actually accomplish it. So, yeah. So if you're listening to this call, you want GitOps, get in touch. Love that. And then what's in the future? Like what else is going on at WeaveWorks? Where do you see the market going? You know, kind of parting thoughts here. So when the CNCF was first formed, you know, we used the same technique as with Spring and Netflix to attach brands to it. So the Kubernetes brand, the Prometheus brand, and that created this pool of concentrated attention, which was moving very fast. And I think that now we're in a sort of more mature state where we're starting to see the emergence of a common set of tools that people can more or less agree on. In many cases, there's more than one tool, and that's fine. Sometimes they overlap, sometimes they don't. In other cases, there is one obvious sort of standard like Kubernetes. doesn't mean it'll be here forever. It could probably evolve into a whole new life form and there could be alternatives. But this is a tool chain we can be pretty confident about for a while, like Linux in the 90s and the web. So I think now into the second stage of what can we do with this? And so we're looking for uh, what is the iPhone moment? What is the cloud business opportunity created by this? Where are the entrepreneurs going to come from to change the nature of the game here? Because we see the demand. We see the demand because we have got an incredible infrastructure coming through with cloud hyperscale, data centers everywhere, machines on demand, chat relatively cheap, 5G networks, very high bandwidth communication to make a whole compute fabric runs everywhere around the world. And that's just going to grow and grow and grow. And we also have companies that want to use digital experiences for everything, whether it's booking a hotel room or you know talking to a friend or, you know, something I haven't thought of yet involving drones and IoT or something like that, you know, all these possibilities will all run on this infrastructure. And that means there's going to need to be hundreds of millions of developers, hundreds of millions of developers. And they are going to use tools which are being invented now. They're not going to care about tools that existed before now. Well, they might, but they'll see them as old hat. So this is the opportunity to create the developer paradigm for operations and for application development, all of these hundreds of millions of people for the next 10, 20 years. And that I think is just incredibly exciting. I love that. We're in for the same journey. So thank you so much for joining. It was really insightful. I loved hearing kind of the context around the different companies you've been involved in and sort of what you've learned along the way and really excited about uh, the future of WeaveWorks and where you're going from here. So thank you so much. Thank you very much, Grant. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just to learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. This podcast is also brought to you by my company, Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications to their largest enterprise customers. Check us out at replicated.com.